0: Happy Wednesday, welcome back to SheChat Podcast, a podcast that shares the stories of inspirational female changemakers to inspire our generation. In today's episode, I chat with Laise Santoro, who is an environmental justice activist and rising sophomore at Johns Hopkins University. We had a great conversation that lasted almost an hour, so I had to chop it down quite a bit, but it was super insightful. Enjoy the episode. Hi, Laise. Welcome to the podcast. How are you? I'm good. How are you? I'm great. Can you please introduce yourself, who you are, what you're passionate about, and anything else you would like to share about
1: yourself? Yeah, for sure. So my name is Laice. Um, I use she or they pronouns. Um, I'm 19 years old. And right now I'm in Pennsylvania, um, a few minutes away from Philadelphia. Um, this is where I've been quarantining uh, all through covid 19, and I'll still be here for a little bit before I go back to Baltimore. Um, I'm a rising sophomore at Johns Hopkins University in Baltimore and I'm majoring in public health and environmental studies. Um, And so I'm really excited to go back. Um, I miss it a lot Um, and you know, all these discussions around like what's going on this semester, housing, financial aid. Um, It's been really confusing, but I'm just excited to be able to go back um, and, you know, see my friends, go back to campus, and um, get the semester going. Um, other things I do outside, and I'm like, excited to go back to Baltimore for, is I do um, most of my organizing um, there. So I am a um, hub coordinator for Sunrise Movement Baltimore and Sunrise Hopkins. I just founded um, a hub, and Sunrise is a national youth-led movement to stop climate change, create millions of good jobs, building multi-class, multi-racial movement um, to stop climate change and fight for a Green New Deal. And so we, we do lots of local work in the city um, to support environmental justice legislation, uh, work with other organizations that are doing, you know, organiz- like racial justice, transit justice, economic justice work, because it's all intersected. Um, And um, on campus, specifically, we just started out and we've been working um, to, you know, get ourselves off the ground and, you know, establish our presence on campus. I also work with Real Food Hopkins. Um, I'm an organizer. It's a food justice organization. Um, I work with them to fight um, big food, big soda corporations that Hopkins has contracts with. Um, These contracts directly uphold white supremacy, and also um, fight against food sovereignty for the surrounding Baltimore area and across the world, um, especially with these huge corporations like Pepsi having such a strong presence on our campus, and also having such a strong presence around the world and in our culture. So I am in the actions and campaigns chair. which means organizing like rallies and events and tabling. And um, that's going to look very different um, right now because of COVID and going back on campus. So we've been trying to figure out what that looks like. Um, I'm also one of the organizers for our divestment organization on campus. And basically, the work is to divest our endowment, which is just a chunk of money that universities have, um, kind of just like saved up in their back pocket. Um, And divest that from fossil fuel corporations and so basically Hopkins is essentially funding a lot of fossil fuel activity and um, you know harming indigenous sovereignty indigenous land um, and harming our environment so we want Hopkins to stop doing that and these campaigns are all around the country all around the world Um, again because this practice and this culture of um, everything is so intertwined into our society Um, What else? I'm a, this summer I'm a fellow for Divest Ed, which is an organization um, working to support college organizers, college students um, fighting for divestment on their campuses um, and uh, working to dismantle white supremacy and the different ways that divestment, um, you know, fights against that. So, um, I've been learning so much, listening to some really great speakers and meeting students from all across the country. Um, working to, to, you know, educate myself and build strategy for this upcoming semester. And we're, again, all trying to navigate this through COVID-19, so um, it's really crazy. And, oh, and I was born in Brazil, so I moved here when I was younger, and um, that's a huge part of the organizing work that I do um, and a reason why I'm so passionate about climate justice and, you know, immigrant justice and the intersections between all of that and just want to say one more thing um, with um, things going on with right now, with this uprising for the movement for black lives, I've been more involved with working to stop the Johns Hopkins private police force. Um, that is, you know, there's been so many discussions around this and so many actions took place in the last year to uh, make sure that that doesn't happen. Um, Cause that would only harm um, students, black students on campus and, you know, further, um, uh, racist, you know, policing and around the Baltimore community as well across our different campuses. So, um, again, really into talking about like intersections of all of these issues and, um, yeah, that's a little bit about me. Sorry, that was a lot of talking. No, it's awesome that you're involved in
0: so many different organizations. So can you tell me a little more about when and why did you decide to immigrate to the U.S. from Brazil? Can you just tell me a little more about that?
1: Yeah, so um, my dad actually moved here because he got a job offer um, and was looking for more opportunity, um, like any immigrant uh, is, and, um, you know, working to to achieve that. And so I moved in, um, let me see, I was about two years old. So I was very young and I moved from São Paulo, um, Brazil, which is the largest city um, and my whole family still lives there, so I still visit them as much as I can. It's very difficult now. Um, and in the past few years, um, so that's like a huge part of you know who I am now and embracing you know my, my culture, where I come from, um, and you know working to, to make sure that you know Latinx voices are um, incorporated into in, listened to um, and supported.
0: Mm -hmm. what was it like assimilating and adjusting to america even though you were so young like did you remember
1: brazil at all i didn't remember living there myself but um i can speak to the assimilation process because i still think that that's like happening (laughs) i feel like that doesn't really stop as like um you know because the u.s u.s culture is so um so distinct and so i actually fun fact um all throughout, like elementary school, and since, since like the first grade um, until I um, graduated from high school, I did not go by Laïs because you know I had lots of people asking me and like having trouble with that, um, and you know I I thought it was my fault that they couldn't pronounce it that that I was the one that have to change my name. So I actually went by Lies, which is actually you know a an English word for like a false statement, a false thing um and so I realized that like that was something um that I needed to stop and um so now I go by Laís um and so that was like still something that like was very prevalent throughout like my whole high school and you know education and growing up and all that stuff. I don't remember like at first um you know what it was like because you know I, I, I grew up learning both Portuguese speaking both Portuguese at home, speaking English at school with my friends, Um, and, you know, it was a very tough, I tried always to hide that part of myself as much as I could, Um, and, you know, especially with my name, like, it's kind of hard to, but, like, when um, pronouncing it more, like, in an American way, per se, um, definitely helped, like, conceal um, the fact that I was Brazilian, the fact that I and I wasn't from here. And, you know, the community that I live in is very, you know, very white <laughs> um, and, um, you know, not very exposed to other cultures. Um, so it was very tough for me to, you know, put myself out there and embrace that. And especially during high school, that was something that I really started to embrace more. Um, And as I kept growing up and, you know, as I started getting into activism, I began to realize that, you know, like, silencing and, like, hiding my identity um, was, like, directly linked to silencing um, marginalized communities, marginalized immigrants that, you know, weren't as lucky as I was in, you know, having opportunity and assimilating and being accepted into um, into this country. So that was definitely something that I began to realize. And you know, I was like, I cannot, I can no longer be you know, silent about this. So I've definitely began, began to embrace my, myself, my identity um, so much more. And now I go by Laïs, So I'm really trying to you know, not hide that part of myself anymore.
0: Mm-hmm. How has being a first-generation college student affected how you view school and academics?
1: Yeah. Um, it's very tough. I will admit it's very tough because the U.S. college system, it really makes it very difficult. Um, if you haven't already gone to college, if you don't have the like support system, um, you know, financially, academically. And, you know, I was one of those kids. I did the college process pretty much my myself. And I applied. I did all the research. I, my mom would come to college visits with me, but it's, it's still something that I, you know, I took, I took initiative on and did myself. Um, And, you know, luckily I had some good support at my school and it was ingrained to me that, you know, as a first generation college student, like I had a lot of responsibility, um, you know, to be a role model for my siblings. I have a younger sister and a younger brother. Um, So I was literally the first person in my entire family to, to go to school. Um, And let alone, like, um, apply to, like, Johns Hopkins, and so um, it's definitely been very, very difficult, and the college process is extremely um, challenging. There's so many potential barriers and ways that you can be turned away from it, but I definitely believe that, you know, once I got to school, especially um, to college, I I met so many other people that were first-generation, first-generation immigrants, first-generation college students, low-income, and so I was very, it was very eye-opening for me to be able to, you know, be with others that you know understood the the struggles of being a first-generation college student, um, understood the struggle of navigating the whole system, um, things like standardized testing, and uh, the whole process is just so different in in Brazil. And so, you know, that those experiences that I had with the college process and navigating it myself and. Um, it's really inspired me to do the same to help others, um, because now I work with Matriculate, which is a nonprofit organization that works, that pairs you up with, um, marginalized, um, students, um, underprivileged high school students that, you know, are kind of in the same boat, and, and, um, you know, kind of in this college process on their own, and the first people in their families to be going through it, um, so I- work with very closely to navigate and you know walk them through these are scholarships that you can apply for have you asked letters of recommendation and just kind of those kinds of reminders that they might not have that support at home and at school and so I'm just like another person that they can go to that they can text and be like I just need help I need some support and um, I'm kind of like that person that I always wish I could have had Um, and so now I'm just really grateful for the opportunity to to be able to help others navigate this process because it is challenging, it is very difficult, and so I think there definitely needs to be more support around that and less deterrence um, in the college process. But um, we're yeah, working. for
0: sure, for sure, we're
1: working on that.
0: <laughs> when did you start getting passionate and interested in climate justice and activism? I guess in general.
1: Yeah. So I um, it was. I've always just kind of like been passionate, you know, but like never really took action until it was the summer before my senior year. Um, I first started getting involved with Sunrise because I had um, just come back from this trip um, to Panama where um, it was with the Mental Sustainability Club at my high school. And so we had gone, we'd stayed in the rainforest for about a week just learning about the land, engaging with um, the indigenous communities um, and really educating on, on ourselves on, you know, what it means to, to you know, fight against climate change. Um, and so learning about like specifically, we did lots of sustainable um, farming and um, gardening, um, cultivating, cultivating food, learning about um, their natural like living systems And, you know, taking that knowledge back with us and realizing, you know, this is what we're fighting for. We have to drastically like transform the ways that our, that the US is implicit in this crisis in Panama and beyond. And so I came back, but it was more than just that experience because last summer in Brazil, my family in Sao Paulo, um, there was the day of fires. um, And it was the day that, smoke from the Amazon fires, um, the illegal fires in the Amazon um, that were clearing land for agribusiness and agriculture. Um, The smoke from that reached the city. And I remember my cousin sending me images and videos of the day. And she was like, look at the sky. It's pitch black and it's 2 p.m. And she was telling me how there was black rain for the days following. And I had just come back from visiting last summer about, I was, about two weeks after I'd come back. But when I was still there, little did I know that there was so much land, so many indigenous communities that were being forced off their land, um, harmed and oppressed by huge corporations um, that were greedy and looking to make a profit off of the land. And so once, once I heard about that, I had taken a very long break Um, due to to burnout and activism um, from my moments in my senior year of high school in the beginning of senior year Um, but after that last year I I I knew that I I needed to be able to engage better with this work um, and do it more sustainably in the way that I was you know fighting for like a sustainable future um, where indigenous people aren't kicked off their land where greedy corporations don't have power um, and you know, we are able to, to protect our land and our people um, and our communities. Um, so I would say there was, those are like the two main moments that I, I became involved and, I, and interested and engaged, but then I became like that engagement reignited um, last year once it directly impacted my family, um, who has like respiratory issues and literally could not go outside because they could smell the ash in the air, they could smell the smoke in the air, and it was just hard to it was hard to breathe and hard to see and just hard to experience um so that was when I I became directly involved and you know I had been involved with like um advocating for immigrant justice refugee justice beforehand but never to the degree to the degree that that changed for me in my senior year of high school
0: yeah why do you think the youth are the ones leading the climate justice climate justice movement rather than adults
1: yeah so Youth are the ones that are going to be living through it. We're the ones that, you know, we didn't, we didn't do anything to, to cause this crisis. We're, we're just trying to live. We're just trying to have a future and, you know, have a family or have, um, you know, achieve our goals, have dreams and be able to, to live and ex- be able to experience um, what so many people that came before us, our parents or grandparents have experienced and have been lucky enough to not have to worry about. And I think that this, our generation is, everyone just kind of ingrained, has just this anxiety about the way the world is and the way our environment is right now. And, you know, just, just grief about, um, you know, what, what is happening to, to young people that are being directly impacted on the front lines and um, to young people that um, know that it's coming. Um, this is a lot of reasoning in the U.S. and like we experience in the U.S. because we are in a position of privilege as a country and aren't um, experiencing, um, you know, widespread um, climate injustice. Um, but black, brown, indigenous communities are all around the world and even in our, our country, especially um, uh, in the South um, and in the Midwest. And it's super important for for the ones that are being impacted young people the most, not just young people on the front lines, but also young people um, to be to be leading this fight, demanding that they listen to us because we are the ones that are going to have to live in this future, deal with the consequences. And older generations don't just get to to ignore us because they're the ones that have let policy, corporations, billionaires have power and have done nothing about it. And now we're the ones that are making these connections, and they're trying to silence us and you know let, not listen to young people. But we we're too many, we're too many, we're too concerned, and you know we have the we have to be the ones that are leading this change um, and demanding this future that we are going to live in. We we can't just let this slide by. Um, it's been happening for way too long, and young people really need to be the ones at the forefront of climate justice work. Um, advocating for you know changes in our system and our society um, that really transform the way that we that we think about our our environment, about each other, um, and so that's why that's why young people have to be leading it because we're the ones that are going to be living through it, and we we can't afford to to do that.
0: Mm-hmm. And I feel like it's hard sometimes because adults are the ones who are making the policies, you know, in the government. So how do you deal with that? I guess.
1: Yeah, no, it's definitely very, very difficult because even in like our normal lives, not just in organizing, we have older people and our parents and um, politicians like trying to tell us what to do, trying to tell us how to, how, what they're, what they're going to do, quote, what they're going to do on, about climate change. And they're, they're never going to truly understand it because they're, they're not the ones that have grown up worrying about this. They're not the ones that are thinking about like what is my life going to look like in 20 30 40 years because they are not the ones they're the ones that have you know been lucky enough not to have to worry about it and now we're the ones that you know have to be taking action and leading this, this movement and like historically um, environmental um, advocacy and you know different conservation projects that's what that's what environmental activism has been before um, But, and you know, it's been led by, you know, like middle-class, like middle-aged people. But we're really seeing this transform um, with how people are thinking about, you know, just how drastic this climate crisis is um, and centering different voices. So it's definitely very difficult when you have politicians that won't listen to you and say, think that they know better. Um, People like parents that are like, just stay in school. Um, because, you know, we're, we're going to be fine. You don't have to fight for this. You don't have to worry about this. When in reality, we all do, like young people all do. Um, we all have a stake in this. And so it's very, it's, it is very difficult to navigate it. And um, I think we're getting to a lot, to a moment where, you know, it's not, a, we can't just be relying on politicians and people in power and government and corporations to to listen to us because they haven't. And so I think we've really just been uh, changing, you know, fighting to, to build power in our communities, center young people, young voices, young black indigenous POC voices in our local communities and build community power because that way we, we don't have to worry about like if these politicians um, you know, saying things that they're, that they're gonna do and they're not sticking to them. We have community accountability and um, you know, it's a really different focus um, to just be relying on other people to, to do the change But really just demanding it and you know fighting for these changes locally and um hoping that and doing that widespread around the country um to really build power and realize that you know they're not we're not going to back down until you actually do something about this and you know we're doing we're doing changes in our own lives and our communities and you're just gonna be left behind if you don't move along with us so yeah yeah
0: that kind of leads me into my next question. How can teens still fight for climate justice even though we're second side?
1: Yeah, there's been, um, I've, I've struggled with this myself. And um, so there's many different ways that you can do digital organizing and different movements have been organizing um, digitally. And it's looked like I've attended so many trainings and so many different, you know, online rallies, um, different online Educational like speaker events, and so there's been a lot of different ways where we're adapting, you know, what we would do in person and together, um, onto a digital space. And you know, this has been met with like several Zoom trolls that you know have bombarded our meetings, um, and you know, taken over a lot of people that are you know against what we're doing, um, shouting obscenities, and you know, making a space really uncomfortable and really unsafe. And so that's like that's a sign that, you know, there's people that are fighting against us um, and, you know, that they're feeling threatened. Um, so it's it's a good sign, I think, that we are building power digitally. And I think at the beginning of quarantine, a lot of people have had, had struggled and really been super worried because it was right before Earth Day um, and huge mobilizations were being planned, um, huge partnerships and events were being planned, but things like Earth Day Live um, were being planned in place of You know those larger mobilizations where millions of people literally engaged over three days, Um, and it's really been an opportunity for me personally to just educate myself and taking the time to to learn from people to to improve um, community organizing spaces, and also taking the time to to heal and to rest because that's also a part of the work. That's not something that we're told a lot, and that's not something that I'm super comfortable with yet but it's really important for us to take this time take this extra time that many people might have and you know not get ourselves burned out because that's when you know movements start to fall apart when we've been going 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 and you know not taking time for for each other and for ourselves so i think that that's something that has also been something that's coming up a lot in this space and it's important for you know climate justice activists especially young people to realize that you can take time to breathe. You can take time to hang out with your friends and not constantly be worrying about this because we there, there's a movement now. There's millions and probably billions of people like thinking about this and engaging with us around the world. And it's really important for us to take a step back to realize, you know where we've come, celebrate. But remember that, you know, this work does not end here. This work is not near over. It's We're very at the beginning of all of this. and. So, especially being inside, it's more to take this time to to educate yourself, rest, learn with each other, and you know, build power in different ways. Get creative, um, and you know, build community because um, that's something that we can really dedicate a lot of time to, and that's really hard to do um, in person, um, especially with so many other things going on. And you know, in our quote normal society. Um, so yeah, there's so many different ways and it's, I've seen so many people get creative. So um, I think it's just important to, to remember that you're not alone in this. And you know, everyone is stressed and worried about what's going to happen with this pandemic, but um, just doing what feels right for you and what feels comfortable and, and most safe for you.
0: Mm-hmm. How do you personally deal with activism burnout and burnout just as a whole?
1: Yeah, I actually experienced a really long moment of burnout that I didn't know was burnout until I I learned about this um, term like this past year. But actually, after like the national um, sunrise, Pelosi sit sit in at the uh, Nancy Pelosi's office in 2018, after the midterm elections, and after the Democrats had taken back over the House. um, There was a moment where I thought I was just not able to really get engaged with the work. But turns out I was just exhausted and burnt out from six plus months of straight organizing, not realizing that I could take a break while trying to do college apps, while working two jobs, while trying to be um, you know, a good sibling and daughter and help out at home. And turns out that was burnout. I spent like eight months of not doing anything related really to, to organizing or activism. And that was really harmful for me. Um, because I that was eight months that I that I could have been engaging with people and, you know, learning and educating and, um, you know, doing doing stuff. But I think that it's really important that that I had that experience because now I'm able to identify what that looks like. And for me, that just looks like a lot of the time me want again, not wanting to engage with the work, feeling, you know, unable to to do good work and, you know, um, canceling a lot of meetings. Um, is what I think is a huge indicator for me personally, where I I begin to, to say, I'm, I'm tired when in reality, I'm just, I'm just burned out, or, you know, I make, uh, I, I make plans for something else. Um, but over time, that can really build onto each other and be really, really harmful. And, you know, make you not want to engage for a longer period of time, like that would happen to me. So, and too many activists experience this, which is really, really um, frustrating. And, um, and, you know, it makes me really sad because it's so much opportunity for people to to be continuing to build relationships with people, be doing different kinds of what we think is work. Um, but, you know, resting is work. Taking mental health days is work. Um, collective care is part of the work, and especially right now with these discussions of defunding the police and police abolition and, you know, what what does justice and community accountability look like? We've been hearing lots of Restorative justice and you know community healing um, as like being part of huge centering part of the work, and so I think that's just a part of like you know the society that we live in um, and this culture, this grind culture that we're in that tells us we have to be doing things all the all the time or else we're not worthy, and you know that's just not true. That's not true at all. We we need to be putting ourselves and you know each other first and caring for each other um in this activist space that is so complicated and complex and you know has so many levels to it and you don't know the space until you're a part of it um so i think it's really important for me to one be able to identify when i'm feeling you know tired or overwhelmed and from that moment on instead of that letting that lead to exhaustion and then burnout just stopping and you know stopping and being overwhelmed and identifying that and being like I'm not going to look at Slack this whole weekend. I'm not going to schedule any calls. I'm going to read tonight instead of working on this, you know, toolkit or something. Um, and you know, substituting different things that would constitute as typical, like work um, in, you know, organizing and all that kind of stuff. But you know, redefining what that means and realizing that you know, taking time for me is um, is part of that work because um, we're trying to f- find, you know have this society where we all care about each other and um you know community care as a center uh is centered in our society and that's just not the case right now so you have to like lead by example and uh, be able to to identify in yourself you know what does that look like for me and you know spread that message on um, so yeah that's what that's what it looks like for me and just making sure that you know i am trying to prevent burnout by actively um advocating for myself not feeling bad about it, but being extremely open with my organizer, my fellow organizers um, and activists.
0: Yeah. I think taking breaks regularly is important
1: because if you take a break after your burnout, well, that
0: defeats the whole purpose, right? So.
1: Yeah, exactly. And like, it can lead to a much, to like a much longer unintended, like quote break. Um, and we we don't want that. We need sustainable action. We want um, to, you know, the space to be safe and, you know, a welcoming. And um, so, yeah. Mm-hmm.
0: So clearly you're passionate about mental health. And can you tell me more about how mental health is not only a problem, problem during this time, during COVID, but also something fueled by oppressive systems in our society?
1: Yes, for sure. Um, I would love to talk about this. Um, so with my fellowship, we've been learning a lot about, um, what we're calling as like white supremacy culture, um, grind culture. And basically it's just the culture that, you know, defines, you know, what it means to be like a worthy person. And a lot of the time, especially in like capitalist society that we live in, that is, um, you know, through our work and employment and how much we contribute to, to the economy or whatever we do physically rather than who, who we are, um, as people. And so, um, especially in, you know, this inherently like racist society, a lot of the times it's also, um, you know, defined through oppression against black indigenous POC, low income, poor people. Um, and that oppression fuels so much, um, harm and trauma and, it's really important to to acknowledge that you know mental health is different across um, across cultures, across communities, but it's still something that you know is is probably deeply rooted in the way that our society like inherently functions, and you know the values of our society that are that value you know profit over people, and that value you know production and product, product productivity, excuse me, over um, you know. Who you are, who you're feeling, and you know um, your yourself as a person, and not just like an employee or you know a a, uh, a citizen of a country. But um, and I think a lot of the times with like our, our young people, and especially with this generation, we have we see mental health being so prevalent and so like normalized, and you know making like jokes and memes about feeling you know depressed or anxious. Um, we've normalized things like climate anxiety. We've normalized, you know, not listening to and not centering um, marginalized voices um, and you know their experiences. We, we've normalized not listening to them when they when they say they're they're in pain or they're sad or they're harmed, and you know we just kind of put those subjects aside because they're seen as like controversial or you know not something we talk about here. Um, but that's super harmful because that perpetrates so much pain and so much um so much harm and trauma and just keeps it going in this cycle. And I think we really need to, you know, tackle these like root causes, which are like in our root values um in this country, in the society, and really making sure that you know people, especially like young people, are like valued, that our healthcare system is like supportive, that young people in schools have these support systems to address, you know, mental health and what that looks like and how that shows up for different people um through adequate resources like social workers mental health professionals counselors and not things like cops armed cops especially um which is something that you know has been discussed so much right now in this uprising um and you know they're really making sure that it's not something that becomes normalized and you know that the society that we weren't that we're thinking about and you know um that we're fighting for, where it's a livable future based on compassion and care um, and, you know, healing, because right now that's not the case. And so we really need to be, as like organizers and activists, we all need to be thinking about like mental health. And, you know, everyone I feel should be a mental health advocate, because that means advocating for yourself and for your community and advocating again for this future that we want to see. And that starts with, um, I think, really um, tackling it in our organizing spaces, also because it's become normalized to like be stressed and have burnout. And you know, you're not like a real activist until you're like staying up until three a.m. doing stuff for for the movement, you know. But it should be normalized. Normal sleep schedules should be normalized. Days off should be normalized. You know, community like truth circles where people address harm that they have felt, or you know, what's going on outside of their organizing life should be normalized. And so. I think that that's super, super important to to be thinking about. And that's something that I've been, um, you know, rethinking and reframing um, through my time in this fellowship through like this, these past couple of weeks in learning about things like restorative justice, um, community healing and accountability, um, those kinds of things. So
0: Mm -hmm. I think burnout is present in all aspects of our lives beyond activism, like in Mm -hmm. school, work, you know, everything.
1: Yeah. Like, so many, especially, like, ah, it's so crazy how much our, like, education system, you know, prides people who, like, study all the time, and, you know, quote, don't have a life, Um, and, you know, that's, like, the only way you're going to get into, like, a good school, or, you know, especially in college, like, that's been normalized in, like, my friend groups, and I'm, like, the one that's, like, always taking naps, and, you know, closing my laptop sometimes, and, you know, yeah, I get less work done sometimes, but, like, I'm in a better mental state overall, and I'm better able to to engage in, like, organizing work. I'm better able to do assignments and exams and, you know, better, just being able like, to be an overall, like, better human because of, like, putting, like, myself first and kind of, like, leading by example. I don't want to say that, but, like, like being able to, to realize that, like, if I do this, like, I'm normalizing this thing that I am speaking against, um, so making those connections, and I think it's really important to to address that in our own, in our own lives, um, in our families. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. And so you're involved in so many different organizations and
0: everything. So I was wondering, how do you balance it all?
1: Google calendar is my one true love and the only way that I'm able to do anything. Um, if it's not in my calendar, it's not happening. I always um, make sure to update that as much as possible. I actually have like a whole separate spreadsheet that like mark, that separates my day by half hour so I can see it clearer. Um, And, you know, I mark things by color. So it's all organized. And, you know, I even put things like take a nap into my calendar, into my daily schedule. um, Or even sometimes I like just so, or things like eat, shower, um, work out. And, you know, it's kind of like, Well, don't you think you'd just do that? Well, that's the thing. Like I will, if it's not in my calendar, it's not happening. And so being really intentional about how I, how I use my time. Um, And additionally, like, for example, like one thing that I'm doing this weekend um, is I have stopped scheduling calls um, for this weekend. I do this sometimes and I've been starting to do it more where, you know, I take the weekend. Um, like I have like one or two. Um sometimes it's like impossible to cancel all of them, but um just really making sure that I plan out time and I'm super intentional and committed to to the time that I have um and making time for for things that you know I, I would probably push to the side if I had the option. But since it's in my calendar and since you know I'm trying to, you know, think about this this future and everything that we want with, like, collective care and, um, you know, have to start having to start with, like, starting with myself is, like, a good spot. Um, and then that really helps me, like, again, like, stop burnout, prevent burnout, um, but also just time to recenter. Remember that, you know, organizing isn't everything and, like, I'm human. I'm a college student. Um, I have to move in in a few weeks. Um, so thinking about those kinds of things that, you know, um, are super important. Um yeah I think it's just really staying organized staying intentional with the time that you have and remembering your time is valuable um and you know just just making sure to to remember what's like really important to you and making sure that you you fade that in and anything else that doesn't align with that you know pushing it to the side Cool. any anything else you want to say any last thoughts um just make sure to you know put yourself first um but remembering that you know there's a movement behind you, um, that you are not in this alone. Um, activism and organizing is very difficult and very hard, um, but the fact that we're doing it shows who we are as people and as a community, and really finding what's really passionate, what you're really passionate about. For me, that's climate justice, food justice, immigrant justice. But also remembering that everything is so intersectional, and that you're fighting for you know this transformative society where people are valued and cared for, cared for. And any step that you take towards that is is super powerful and um, you're all change makers.
0: Yes. All right. Thank you so much for coming
1: on the podcast. I had such a great time talking to you. Thank you so much. I really appreciate it. And yeah, feel free to message me with any questions, thoughts, um, comments. I'd love to hear what y'all are organizing with or getting involved with. Um, And yeah, thank you again so much. I really appreciate it.
0: Thank you all so much for listening to this week's episode. Make sure to follow Laece on Instagram. Her Instagram will be in the description box below. Also, make sure to follow us on Instagram at SheChatPodcast. If you're listening to this episode on Apple Podcasts, I would appreciate it if you leave us a review. It really means a lot. Um, I hope you guys have a great rest of your day, and I'll talk to you next time. Bye! Oh,